I think my mic, there we go, there she blows. <laughs> our key scripture this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there this morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the Gospels, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this Gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, I want you to repeat something after me. Okay, are you ready? It really is a good thing. Sometimes we take some convincing. All right, smart guys. <laughs> Trellis. It really is a good thing. Sometimes we take convincing that something really is a good thing. I don't know what it was like in your house when you were growing up, but if my mother put something on the table in front of us, we were expected to eat it. And my father in particular has, he thinks all food is good food. I don't know, I can't off the top of my head think of anything that my dad doesn't like. Um, and I'm staring at Nisha because I'm, she's so beautiful. So, uh, so I can't think off the top of my head of anything that my, that, my, that my dad doesn't like. So when we were growing up, if my dad thought something was delicious, we were in turn supposed to think that it was delicious, whether it was delicious or not. So, and I, and I know, I think I've shared this with you before, but it's, so what my mom did is she made this salad, and the salad was a leaf of iceberg lettuce with half a canned pear with cottage cheese in the middle of the canned pear and pepper on top. Y'all weird. Those of you who are saying, that's perfect. This would sit in front of my sisters and I, and we were expected to eat it. There's just... A problem with that, you see, and that I don't like cottage cheese. But within our house, it was not permissible to not like cottage cheese, especially when it was on this delicious salad. Have you ever looked at cottage cheese? 
Do you know what it looks like? It's chunky and runny and white, and it's just... Ugh, it's, it's so gross. It is so gross. But my dad would say, you have to eat this because it's so good, and I disagreed with him. My taste buds disagreed with him. My gag reflex disagreed with him. So many parts of me disagreed with my father. Now, my grandmother, my grandmother made chicken enchiladas. And they were delicious. They were so, so good. And I don't like cottage cheese. I also don't like sour cream. Sour is in the name. Sour cream. Like you're not... I, okay. At any rate, I also don't like sour cream, but I, I loved these enchiladas. And it wasn't until I was like 12 that I found out what they were actually called. Sour cream chicken enchiladas. And the sauce was made from sour cream. But I still loved them because I had a history of knowing they were delicious. Now, if my son, Jedediah, finds out that there is something in some food that he doesn't like, it doesn't matter how delicious it is. He could have eaten it for his entire life, but once he finds out that one thing is in it, right, it's done. And some of us are that way. I don't like something, and therefore, I don't want it. But sometimes it really is a good thing. Sometimes it really is a good thing. How do we know, though, if something that is different or something we think we don't like or something that is outside of our realm, <laughs> how do we know if it's a good thing or not? How can we tell? As we noted last week, the community that this letter was written to was facing this issue of not liking the same thing but on steroids. You had two groups of people who historically were completely divided from one another. One group was uh, the, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. And on the other side, you had the Gentiles, the people who were not the chosen people of God. And within the Christian community, these two groups are coming together. And they're figuring out how difficult it is to live life together in this way when you are now called together under something new. And so Paul here is writing to them and he's trying to tell them, look, all these things that are happening in you, you are all brought together by Jesus. And Jesus is tearing down all of the barriers that keep you from one another. And not only those barriers, he's also tearing down all the barriers that are between you and God. So together as a community, you are drawn together by Jesus. And that is what makes you who you are. But still, Paul, but still, this is so hard. It's so different. It's so weird. What do we do? How do we do this? How do we know this is the right thing to do? It just is so off from what has always been. And this is where Paul gives this community a wonderful idea that this idea needed to, this community needed to grasp onto. And it was this. I know this seems weird, and I know that Jesus is breaking down all the barriers. I know all these things are happening, but there's one thing you need to know. It is God that is doing this right now. God is doing this right now. God has a plan, and this plan, he says, has been in existence for a long time. But you get to live in the time and the place where God is revealing what he's doing to everyone. That God is bringing those who were far away near to him again. 
And you, the church, you get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of sharing with the world what God is really like, what God is really doing, that he is the God who brings people together, that he is the God who loves and forgives us from the things that we've done. You get to be a part of it. And I know it feels weird. I know it feels weird. But God is inviting you to be a part of something amazing. And you, Ephesian church, get to choose whether you are going to be a part of it or not. God is doing something. God is making something happen. And it is new. But don't hold yourself back from it because it's just so different. Instead, he says, in him and through faith in him, approach God with freedom and confidence. As wonderful as that is, as wonderful as this message is, it says something about us, doesn't it? That after Paul writes in chapter 2 about all the barriers being torn down, he still has to go back and convince them, you know what, this really is a good thing. What God is doing really is a good thing. And those words echo in my heart today. That God has a plan. That God reveals himself through his body, the church. And that God wants to change the world through us. And this is a good thing. If we choose to get on board. those places so all the instructions are on the board the screen thing behind me all right all right so uh i want to start this morning with a with a with an important question uh, that i that i want you to think about um and it's it's this question how how much do our motivations matter. Okay, how much do our motivations matter? So uh, we could phrase this question a lot of different ways. Okay, is it what you do or is it why you do it? So what do you think? Do our motivations matter? I think we would all probably say yes. So, so then the, the next sort of part of that is to what degree do our motivations matter? How important are they? Well, I think we could all say, oh, you know, well, they're they're really important. Okay, so let me just give you some examples. And we ask this question, how much do our motivations matter? Um, let's say, do any of you have a sworn enemy? Anyone? Anyone have a sworn enemy? Yeah, Daphne, I thought you would. Let's just say that your sworn enemy comes and offers you a cupcake. Would you take a cupcake from your sworn enemy? Why would you not take a cupcake from your sworn enemy? Because you don't trust their motivations. So it seems on the surface like they're doing nice. 
a nice thing for you, but on their t-shirt it says, I am your sworn enemy. And they're handing you a cupcake. And if you have any brains, you're probably going to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay away from that. So our motivations clearly do matter, but how much do they matter? I got it, I, I was a, a youth ministry intern before I was a youth minister. And uh, in, in the, one of the first youth groups that I worked with up in Oregon, there was a student there, and she was really smart. And um, she had studied her Bible. She knew all kinds of things. But she and I got in this big argument one day. And we got in this argument about why do we do the things we do for God? And she said, well, we do the things we do for God because we don't want to go to hell. And I said, no, we do the things we do for God because we love God. And she says, well, yeah, I guess, but we also don't want to go to hell. I'm like, yeah, I guess, but I love God. (laughs) So we got back and forth, and we just kept going and going back and forth on this argument. Well, is it because you don't want to go to hell, or is it because you love God? And neither one of us would bend on this particular issue. So if we are doing things for God, does our motivation matter, or is it just enough that we're doing something that's good for God? Hmm, that's a tough question, right? Let's store that one away for a second. When we were little, my older sister uh, had this really cool job. She worked, uh, she was a rocket scientist, and um, she had all these kind of fun things, and so uh, she had this great job, and at Christmas time, she would give us these great gifts. And um, one year, she gave us these really awesome gifts. I, can't, I think I got some He-Man toys or something, uh, G.I. Joe, something like that. And, um, and then I had made something for her, and one of my other sisters had made something for her. But my, my third, the third triplet, did not make something for my sister. And so I think, they, and I think this was the year uh, my sister gave them the My Little Pony castle, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was a pink monstrosity. Um, but they got the My Little Pony castle, and so it came time to get gifts, and my one sister hadn't given my older sister a gift. Well, I'm not going to name names here, okay, because this is going on the interwebs. And uh, <clears throat> so it, when all this sort of came down, you know, my parents asked, well, why didn't you get something for Beth? And, and, and Beth was the one, the older one. So, and she's, well, I just didn't. I, didn't. I didn't want to. And they're like, well, you really should give something to Beth. I mean, it's Christmas. She gave you this amazing gift. So my sister got up, marched out of the room, grabbed some movie tickets that were in her uh, stocking that morning and marched back out and went over to Beth and said, I guess these are for you. (laughs) Now, she did something nice, right? She gave my sister movie tickets. (laughs) But But did her motivation matter? Sure, because she really didn't want to give the movie tickets, and so it created this really, really super awkward situation. Now, motivations do matter, and you know when else they probably really matter is when we have to speak these two words. Are you ready? Let me just see really quick. In your head, if you can guess what these two words are, don't say it out loud, but here they are. You ready? Go. I'm sorry. So I'm going to ask Julie Ray and Wayne to come up here uh, to help me out with this particular part of uh, this morning. Um, And what your job is going to be is to decide who does the apologies better. Okay? So uh, 
there are a lot of different ways to say I'm sorry. True? Okay, so let's just hear sort of your standard run-of-the-mill I'm sorry. I see that I hurt your feelings. And is this on? Is this one? Is Kathy's mic on? It's all right. Bonnie, Bonnie's arms have to be like this long today. <laughs> I see that I've hurt your feelings, and I know I've disappointed you, and for that I'm very sorry. Oh, nice. there was nice context, a little thing given around the edge there. Wayne, your turn. I got it. I, I am so sorry. I didn't mean it. I, I know what I did hurt you, and I'm just, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Can we just hug right now? So I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, but this feels like a special moment for us. All right. So who did it better? Julie Ray? Julia, you can clap. We'll do the clapping here. Or Wayne? You guys, yeah, I think he copied me, so whatever. You guys, okay. Okay, so that, that seems pretty much tied. All right. Um, but this is an invitation, friends, to openly judge them. So, I mean, take advantage of it here. Take advantage of it. All right, so that was, I would call that a pretty good sincere apology. Okay, now I would like you to do the oddly formal apology. And we're going to start with you, Wayne. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is odd. Thank you. Julie Ray, oddly formal. Um, okay, so I'm sorry, okay? Do you <laughs> All right. Julie, Julie Ray? Yeah? Wayne? Do you guys not know what an oddly formal apology is? I had no clue what you meant. My dearest, dearest friend, over the last several days as I've reflected on our friendship and I've thought about the ways that our lives have intersected and crossed so many times, I realized that one of those intersections was more than unpleasant and I'm afraid that perhaps I misspoke and for that, I offer you, from the depth of my very being, an apology that I will never misspeak to you again. Okay, we're, we're going to do one more here. Um, this is the classic, you've just asked your seven-year-old to apologize to their sibling or to their friend or to something for something they have done. And uh, so this is the coerced I'm sorry. The coerced I'm sorry. Look here. You know we've taught you better than that. And we have expectations in this household. And we are to love one another. And if you really want to go to that birthday party, I suggest you apologize. Okay, so that is the speech leading up to the coerced apology. Good job. So then what's the apology sound like? From the seven-year-old. From the seven-year-old. The seven-year-old. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry because um, mom said I have to apologize, so I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm sorry. 
That's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. Wayne? Wayne? Julie Ray? Yeah. All right. Good job, guys. Thank you for helping me out here this morning. So, obviously, when we're, apologi- when we're apologizing, our motivations matter. There is such thing as a sincere apology. There is such thing as an insincere apology. And if you are going to go and apologize for something and you don't really mean it, does it count? No, it doesn't. But, you know, here's the tricky thing with uh, motivations and apologies. Sometimes... Sometimes the apology may be entirely sincere. But the person who is being apologized to has decided that it's not quite enough of an apology. I would like, uh, in a short essay, if you describe to me exactly how you transgressed against me. And um, we're going to present this paper in front of a group of, I don't know, 1,200 people. And we will decide within that group whether or not you really are sorry or not. So sometimes even the motivation, even when it's good, kind of doesn't get you to where it's supposed to go. But when it comes to doing things for God, how much do our motivations matter? We can say a lot, okay. Is it enough sometimes that we're just doing things for him, or is the reason why we're doing something just as important as whatever it is that we do? Mm. Okay. Now, as uh, I, I mentioned earlier today, we saw last week in the letter to the Ephesians that it was written to a church that, remember at the beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, you guys are doing great. I'm, I'm thankful for you. I've heard about your faith. And... Uh, but they have some issues still that they need to overcome. And in particular, they were meshing these two very different groups of people who were not used to being in the same kind of community. They were Jewish Christians, the traditional people of God, and Gentile Christians, the traditional people who were not with God. But again, as he made the point last week in uh, chapter 2, that that. Through Jesus, when you are in Christ, there is something new that happens. And all the barriers and things that held people apart, those barriers are destroyed. And again, not even just the barriers between these two different kinds of people, but the barriers between us and God. And so this is a great and really wonderful idea. But it's hard to put into practice. It's hard for them to understand exactly how to do this and what this means. And, and we've said this a lot you know, when we were going through the story, but we have to remember that these people, these groups of Christians, were figuring out how to live as a community that, was, that is uh, modeled after Jesus. They're, they're figuring this out as they go. They, they have the message of the gospel. They have the teachings of the apostles. But they're, they're figuring out how to live in real life in this way, and it's kind of messy and weird, and you have these people coming from all these different places, and they're trying to figure out how to live one way under Jesus. And the writer of, of, of Ephesians is going to tell them some specific things that he wants them to do in the coming chapters. But before he gets there, he wants them to understand one thing very clearly. He wants them to understand why it is 
that they are going to do the things they will do. He wants to get down to the heart of the issue and the heart of the matter. And, and, and Paul does this in such a way that should be familiar with to us because it's something we have been doing over the past six months. He says a prayer over them to let them know this is what it's all about. And his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, if you have uh, gone to church and read your Bible, it's one that you're probably familiar with. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open them up. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This prayer is a prayer that these new Christians who are figuring out how to live life together, that they will discover what is at the very heart of who they are. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, we're going to read 14 through the first part of 17. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a lot of words there. Let's read it one more time. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, now, I hope that you notice, based on what we've been studying the last couple of weeks, that there is something different here. There's something different that has been thrown in. Now, it starts out with this one very simple point. What is at the core of all things? God. God is at the core of all things. This is a really interesting statement, which I don't know if you've paid attention to it before. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Every family derives its name. The writer is saying that families, and he's speaking to what he considers to be a family, this church, this group of people gathered together by Jesus, but he's saying these families, these groups of people that are together, that live together, that love one another, where do they derive their identity from? Where does that come from? Where does the idea of family come from? It comes from God. And God is the one who gives uh, the very idea of family its identity. He gives it its name. He is the start of all things and the giver of identity. Now, my family, we have a long tradition of uh, being in churches of Christ. Uh, My great-great-grandfather was a preacher, and he traveled all around, and he had a school in Alabama, and he's... I actually wrote a paper in college on him, like as for a history class. That was like a legitimate paper. You could choose him from a list. Okay? And so when you talk to my family about where we come from and being a part of the church, he's probably going to come up because he was an important dude. But guess what? He's not the one that started all this. 
about us being a family and about us being in relationship with God. The very core of who my family is and our relationship with Jesus, it comes from God himself. We get our name from him. We get who we are from God. So that's the first thing that the writer points out, which is not something for us to overlook. You are called together. You were created. You have these relationships because of God. Okay, but secondly, God has a lot to give. God has a lot to give. Now, the writer has used uh, some of these terms kind of throughout. Look look at it there in um, verse 16. I pray that out of his what? Glorious riches. Glorious riches. What is that? What kind of an image does that bring to your mind? Anybody ever watched DuckTales? The cartoon. Scrooge McDuck is in DuckTales. And at the beginning of DuckTales, Scrooge McDuck would jump off of like a diving board into his vast sums of gold. And he would swim in the vast sums of, I don't know how it's possible people, apparently ducks have a special way to like shed gold uh, as it goes. But I love this image that God has glorious riches. You could say, hey, God's got a lot to give. You could say, God has so much for you. But understand, like this term brings it sort of to another level for me. His glorious riches. God has a lot to give. And the prayer is that those who are in Christ will be strengthened through the riches that he has with God's power. Now, and look at it again. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. God who has all these riches is going to use his spirit to give us what? Power, not just strength. Strength is a great word, but it's not just strength, it's power. What's the difference between strength and power? What's that? Power is active. What's that? Power is dynamic, right? That's, that's a good way to put it. So if, if, you have, if you have strength, you might be able to hold on or endure something. You might be able to hold on to this load. If you have power, what can you do with this load? Right? It, it can go. So this is what he's praying for them, that God will strengthen them through the Spirit in their inner being with Power. And think about this. Think about the, the power of this prayer. That God's power would live inside of us. And when this happens, when God's power lives inside of us through the Spirit, listen to what he says. Christ will dwell in our hearts. Now, this is the different statement, okay? Because what has the writer been talking about dwelling within us? The Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God lives in us. But now he's saying, I pray out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is not an idea that Paul speaks about often in his writings, that Christ lives in us. It's almost always the Spirit that lives in us. But in this powerful prayer, he points out that not only does the Spirit live in us, and it's giving us power in our inner being, but then that Christ lives in our hearts. Christ lives in our hearts. Jesus is in our hearts. 
Now, why is that such a significant shift? Why is that? How does that mean more than the Spirit? And, and I'm not downplaying the Spirit. Love the Spirit. And we need the Spirit, and the Spirit helps this happen. But understand something. The fact that Jesus, our Savior, the embodiment of God's love, lives in our hearts, what does that say about our hearts? Does that change something about who we are inside? It should, shouldn't it? It, it, cha- it changes, it, it should change who we are inside in our hearts. And I want to suggest that this idea is not only encouraging, but if Jesus is living in our hearts, then that also draws us together. That our Savior is living inside of all of us. It means something, it means something incredibly deep to me. That the one who knows how much of a failure I am, the one who knows everything I've done wrong, not only, not only died for me and rose for me, but also chooses to live inside of my heart. That's, I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you say about that? What do you say about that? And this, what this says, you know, the embodiment of God's love lives in my heart. And this is something that is dynamic and alive and powerful. Let's look at the, uh, the rest of 17 and go through verse 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Okay. It is the love of God in you that makes you his. It is the love of God in you that makes you his. What is it that shows that you are part of God's family? What is it that shows you know Jesus? What is it that shows you understand who, as much as you can, God is? Well, he tells us exactly. He says, when you are in Christ, you are rooted and established in what? In love. Rooted is a great, you know, horticultural term, denoting that who you are at the bottom, what's holding you up, what's keeping you in place, has gone down and is, and is rich and deep into the soil. And what is that soil? It's love. That soil that is keeping you right where you are and that it's helping you grow and that is holding you up, that is love. The, the idea of, of grounded, it, it kind of borrows it's sort of like a, an, an architectural term, that there is a strong foundation 
to who you are. And what is that strong foundation? It is love. And I want to tell you something that may be the most important thing you hear from me this morning. From the time that I was a kid, I learned the song, Jesus Loves Me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. I also learned Jesus loves little children and various other songs about Jesus loving. But here's a truth that I want to share with you this morning. I, I don't really, even after seeing that song for 40 years and reading my Bible and studying and talking to you, I still don't understand how much God loves me. I don't. I still don't understand how much God loves me. You really, you, you, don't really know how much God loves you. You don't. You can argue with me about this, but you're going to be wrong. (laughs) And you really don't appreciate how much God loves other people. Besides you and me. Why do you not understand? Because you can't. You can't. You cannot understand how much God loves you. Why? Because the love that God has for you is beyond what you can know. It's beyond what you can know. Think about some of the experiences in your life. You grow up and you know that your parents love you and you love them. If you had a good relationship with your parents, not everybody does. And I could tell you what that love felt like and then I met Nisha. And I loved her in a way that was different than I loved anyone else before. And I thought I kind of understood what love was. And then we had Zeke and Jed And then that just blows love out of the water, right? It becomes something completely new and different. But understand this. All of those relationships and depictions of love are what we as humans experience. And hopefully they take us to the depth of something good. But God's love is not our love. It is way bigger. And as much as you cannot describe how much you love your children or love your spouse or love your dog, God's love is more, it is deeper, it is bigger, that you can't wrap your mind around it. You cannot wrap your mind around how much God loves you. Listen to what he says. It's almost like a, it's, it's almost like a paradox that he's created here for us, but... And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. And what is this power used for? Did you catch this? You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Do you see the weirdness of what he says? To know that you can't know. It's so big I want God to give you power with all of God's people to know that you can't know how big God's love is for you. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. 
But that's what he prays for them. We cannot begin to understand the love of God. It is literally beyond our ability to comprehend. But get this, it is knowledge of how big this love is that fills us up. That fills us up with God's power. It is knowing that God's love is so big that allows us to be the kinds of people that God is hoping to pour his power and energy and effort into. And I have a hard time, again, wrapping my mind around this particular concept. You mean to tell me that by understanding how unfathomably big the love of God is, when we get to that mystery, when we are in awe of it, we somehow allow ourselves to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? And, and, and here's, what, here's, what I think, here's what I think it means, okay? When you, <laughs> when you begin to grasp that God really loves me. God really loves you. And then you realize that God loves you more than you think. And then you realize that God loves you more than you can think. You are overwhelmed by that love. It overwhelms you. There is no holding it back. And when God's love overwhelms who you are in the middle of your squishy center, you are filled to the measure of fullness. You can't have all of God in you. He's too big. But God fills you to the measure of fullness so that you are full of God. You are full of God. We've been saying that we believe the love of God in Jesus changes everything. Bryce, that's such a cute little saying. But here's the thing. We have drastically undersold it. Even the first moment it came out of my mouth, we undersold it. Because the love of God changes everything. And, and what is the end result? See, this is the crazier part. It just gets w- more weird. When... When we understand how big God's love is and we are filled to the measure of his fullness, listen to what he says now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is capable of doing more than you are capable of thinking of. God is capable of doing more than you are capable of thinking of. So whatever you are thinking that God could do right now, is not, it's not enough. And on the flip side of that coin, you are always going to sell God short on what's possible. You're always going to sell God short on what's possible because he can do how much more you can't figure it out how much more he could do it's immeasurable you can't figure it out how much more he can do it's immeasurable and we've used 
this particular scripture in a lot of different ways to apply to a lot of different things. But what is he actually talking about? What is the immeasurably more that God is going to do? What is all that about? Well, here, I think before we get to that, we have to realize a couple of things. Number one, Jesus makes all the difference in everything. I think it's something we learn this from this passage. Jesus makes all the difference in everything. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, which we read this morning, in him, talking about Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Jesus changes everything for us in our relationship with God. And it is Jesus living in our hearts that allows the fullness of God to be poured into us. And after this chapter, Paul's going to talk about, okay, so you need to think about this and doing this and doing that and changing that and, you know, this is something you need to keep in mind. But I want you to understand something that I don't think is an overstatement based on everything we've just read. Knowing the love of God is the foundation for everything he is going to tell them to do. And if he just told them to do stuff, it wouldn't matter without this. Because guess what? Being a part of the community of Jesus is not about doing stuff. It's not. Being a part of the community of Jesus is not about doing stuff. Now, I know that seems like a strong statement, like without this, then it doesn't matter. And it seems like a strong statement because it is a strong statement. Well, surely what we do for God counts as long as we were doing it. And, and I hear you, and yes, doing things, for God, doing things for God and the kingdom matter. Those things matter, and we should be doing God things. But what is the number one thing that we are supposed to do for the kingdom? What is the number one thing we are to do for the kingdom? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you want to throw that in there. But what's... Love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love other people, and by loving them with the love that God has, we introduce them to their Savior, and their lives are changed forever. That is what we do. We carry Jesus out into the world. We introduce them to the love of God that is found in Jesus. We baptize them, offering them salvation, and we help them become disciples of Jesus, growing more and more into his image every day. And I just have to tell you, it is really hard, if not impossible, to accomplish that mission if the love of God is not at the center of who you are. If it is not the reason that you are there and doing and thinking and speaking, It is at the center of what we do. And Jesus, as the embodiment of the love of God, is the reason why we do it. Whatever it is, it is driven by the love of God and Jesus. From uh, Ephesians chapter 2, which we read a couple of weeks ago, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, 
you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So how important are our motivations? The love of God is going... Here's why. Okay. I know. I'm starting to... Okay. Here's ultimately why it has to be this way. Okay. Ultimately, why does it have to be this way? Ultimately, it has to be this way because um, the love of God is going to motivate you to do more than you are motivated to do on your own. Period. And just, just period. Um, so what is this immeasurably more? The immeasurably more is not a promise that God will give us what we want or keep us from harm or heal us from disease or make us something. The promise is the promise that God, who has already changed our lives, can use us in powerful ways for his glory. The immeasurably more he can do is your life bringing other people to Jesus. In situations that you didn't think were possible, with people who have been enemies of God, with those who still outright reject him. It is the promise that our salvation can't be taken away from us. It is the promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. The immeasurably more is that the love of God will transform you into a loving machine that takes Jesus out into the world. Do we need proof? Because Jesus gives us proof. In Matthew chapter 25, this parable that I have referred to often, but the parable of the sheep and the goats. There are two groups of people that believe they're going into heaven that day. They have both shown up there, and they're ready to go. And they are separated into these groups. Both groups believed in God and both called themselves followers of Jesus. But one group fed the hungry, gave clothes to the naked, visited those who were sick and in prison. That group was invited in. And the other group did not do any of those things and they were sent away. And I know I pointed this out to you before, but what was the difference between the two of them? It was not what they did. It was the fact that one group loved unreservedly And because Jesus was living in their hearts, they recognized the needs of people everywhere and they did not do it for some sort of reward. They didn't even know they were doing it for God. The love of God just spilled out of them. And they took care of people. And the other group that did not have the love of God living in their hearts ignored everyone except themselves. And they say, well, if we had known it was you, we would have gone. If we had known you were hungry, we would have fed you. And what does that say about them? The love of God is not in their hearts. It's not what they did or didn't do. It was the fact that some people were filled with the knowledge and the love of God. And so God did these amazing things through them because it spilled out of who they were. And the other group didn't know the love. Of God, They didn't realize how big and unfathomable it was. They hadn't accepted how much God loved them, this, this way that was beyond comprehension, and they just lived their lives ignoring people. 
and not loving others. Listen, Jesus makes all the difference. Having Jesus live in our hearts makes all the difference. Beginning to realize that God loves you more than you know makes all the difference. And it makes all the difference not just in what we do, but in who we are and why. The why. Every time. To show the love of God to a world that we believe is lost and desperate without him. This church was a prayer. (laughs) This was a prayer that was prayed over a group that in the hopes that they might begin to capture what it means to be a community that lives the life that Jesus is calling them to live. And we, as a community, have spent time praying and waiting and listening to do. But I want to remind you this morning, we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. And our story, church, is not about what we will or will not do. That's not, it's not who we are. Instead, what our story is, is the fact, I hope, that we are filled to the brim with the love of Jesus Christ. And so no matter what we do, it will all be for him. And to show this world how much we love him. And to show this world how much he loves them. And to show that we believe, we believe that Jesus changes everything. We believe that Jesus changes everything. So this week, pray this prayer for us every day. More than once, if you're feeling saucy. Pray this prayer for us every day. Because as we still think and plan and pray about what kind of community we're going to be, I want to be nothing less than this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to know how much we don't know about you. God, we know that you love us, but our minds cannot begin to comprehend or wrap itself around how much you really, really love us. God, I pray that through the through the Spirit that your power would come into us to help us to begin to know that we don't know. And that will allow us to be filled to the measure of fullness of your power, God. And I pray that you would do immeasurably more in our hearts, in our lives, and through us, that those who come into contact to us, Father, would know that you, your Son, changes everything. We love you. And we thank you for your love. May it define who we are and spill into the deepest recesses of our being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an unimaginable way. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.